Okay, it is a new week, still a new year, and you're listening to the Dan Time Podcast. I am your host, Dan McArdle. DanTimePod at gmail.com, at DanTimePod on the socials. Thanks for downloading and subscribing. Don't know how you found me, but I appreciate you jumping on for at least one ride here. If you haven't made a clean break yet from all of your vices and your poor decisions and you haven't acted on one of those gym membership ads that you keep seeing, you still have time. You've got plenty of time. Slow things down. When you're on Dan time, I'm not telling you to procrastinate, but give yourself a break. Let your thoughts settle for a minute. Listen, my piece of advice, and I don't dish it out often, it's very simple. Give yourself a shot. Give yourself a shot. Other people will give you chances in life. They'll take a chance on you, but it all starts with you. Give yourself a shot. Believe in what you can do, and it doesn't even have to be on a grand scale. Okay, you know when you watch a show or you listen to a podcast and the host says to the guest, come back anytime. You're always welcome here. And then that's the last time you ever see that person on the show. Well, I do my best on this podcast to stay true to my promises. And you hear me talk to people and say, hey, let's do a second episode. So we're getting around to some of those. They won't just start piling up because uh, there's a lot of new guests that I want to introduce you to. But last week's guest, Gerald Watkins, superb guest, chairman and executive director of the Friends of Rickwood. I won't recap everything because you can go back and listen to the episode, but he was referred to me by the very first Dan to appear on this podcast. That's right, the one and only Dan Weinrib. If you just got on board with this show, go all the way back and listen to episode number two. There's a reason why the first Dan wasn't the first actual guest. And it's there that you'll hear Dan Weinrib's compelling story as a public servant. Today, we're going to explore Dan's love for the game of baseball and his 20-plus years as a baseball umpire. If you love baseball, you're going to love this episode. If you're not really a big baseball or sports fan, I think you'll still enjoy this episode. That's because Dan Weinrib is the featured guest. As you'll find out, he's just such a decent and engaging guy. After listening to this show, you're going to understand the mind of the umpire, the ways of the umpire, the challenges that they face, the methods, the reasons why. I know what some of you may be thinking, Dan, it's January. It's freezing outside. It's the, it's the NFL playoffs. It's why are we talking all this baseball right now? The answer is quite simple. It's because when the calendar turns over to a new year, it's time. I don't wait for pitchers and catchers to report to spring training. I don't wait until the end of the Super Bowl, till the end of March Madness. I don't wait. Baseball, to me, is optimism. It's fun. And, as they say, hope springs eternal. 
But just when you think the show is moving in one direction, it'll spin somewhere else. I've got an exciting musical guest next week. So you're always in for a surprise here on the Dan Time Podcast. Again, thanks for listening. Let's get to my conversation now. It is Dan Winerib time. Dan, it is just great to have you back today. Well, thank you, Dan, right back at you. It's an honor to be asked back for another podcast interview. And uh, I see it as another opportunity for you and I just to uh, catch up and continue our friendship and, and share uh, and share experiences. So thanks for having me. Well, when we reconnected a few months ago, it was the first time that we had spoken in over a decade. And it was so much fun. And we covered a lot about what you do day to day and the 2002 race for Jefferson County Tax Assessor. I mean, folks, if you haven't heard this episode, dial it back. You know, put this one on pause and go back and listen to episode number two. You'll really get a, a good a good introduction to Dan Weinrib. But now we have more of an open-ended conversation where we promise to just talk some baseball because as this episode is being released, we're right on the cusp of a new season, pitchers and catchers reporting to spring training camps. And folks, Dan Weinrib has been involved in the game of baseball directly, indirectly for a long time, and specifically for almost 25 years. I think this is coming up on season 24 as a high school baseball umpire in the state of Alabama uh, with the AHSAA. Dan, I don't even know where to start, but um, do you enjoy it as much as you did season one? I'm sure you've learned a lot. And tell me a little bit about being a baseball umpire. I'd love to. It's uh, First of all, Dan, I love the game of baseball. And so, yes, I get as much thrill out of stepping onto a ball field in uh, 2023 and now 2024, as I do, as I did back in 2000 when I first got started. And uh, I mean, uh, to be quite candid, baseball was the first love of my life. I basically came out of my mama's belly uh, wearing a Cincinnati Reds hat. And I've always known just, you know, from growing up in the family that I grew up in that I love the game of baseball, but I must admit, as a kid, I never thought of growing up to be an umpire, but it was a decision that I reached in my late 20s, right at the end of my 20s, and I'm glad I did it because I went from being 29 years old to 30 years young once I started doing it. And so, yeah, it's, it brings me great joy to be involved with the game and to get a chance to call balls and strikes here in our area. And I was able to obtain a copy. This is a few years ago, twenty the 2016-17 Umpire's Manual, but casual fans, even me included, I'm a huge baseball fan, we're not really in touch with what's going on with the officiating crew minute by minute, second by second in the game of baseball, what they're observing, what they're tasked with observing, controlling. Dan, this is a 72-page manual. I mean, the situations that are covered here, you know, some are pretty straightforward that we see all the time, but here's one. A 
A good ball boy helps. Pass balls or wild pitches that go to the fence or backstop are a potential problem for the home plate umpire. An unretrieved ball is a safety hazard. It could also cause confusion if a live ball goes into the, to the same area. A ton of minutiae here for the average fan, but Dan, people probably don't realize how important every little detail is if you are a baseball umpire, whether it's high you're, school, college, minor leagues, or major leagues. You're right. And on top of that, you have variations in the rules of the game between high school versus college versus the pros. And, you know, as a high school umpire, I owe it to the teams and to the high school association to stay updated on the rules book and to know how to apply the rules of the game onto the field. And so uh, that is actually something that I've been doing since really last 10 days and it'll continue into the season is just reading through for me the high school uh, rules book and the appropriate cases to know how to and just make sure that I stay on top of uh, the rules of the game just like you want your doctor to stay uh, involved through continuing ed through you know updates in modern medicine same with your lawyers your accountants and stuff like that and so yeah there's a lot of minutia that you have to stay on top of as an umpire just to be good at what you do. And you're really in charge of handling the players, the assistant coaches, and there's kind of a fine line with how much or how little or if uh, if at all you should get involved with spectators. And you have to have a very solid grasp well, there's knowledge of the game, then there's managing the game itself and managing the relationships. And thankfully, in high school, we there are some protocols in place that, you know, only the head coach and the team captain, if they're if the team's designated team captain, do the communicating with the umpire behind the plate and on the bases. Uh, and so we try not to engage with the assistant coaches beyond and maybe pregame chit chat uh, before the plate meeting. And we definitely don't engage with the fans. Uh, We let, there's a school administrator, at least at the high school level, there's supposed to be a school administrator who's supposed to stay on the premises. And if there are, are any issues with fans that could affect the game, we get in touch with the head coach, head coach gets in touch with the administrator, and the administrator deals with whatever the off-the-field problem is. But thankfully, in my association with our region, those issues are few and far between. So we're lucky that where I officiate, uh, we have a lot of great teams, a lot of good coaches, and the coaches, most of them understand the rule book as well as we do. And so we don't get too much, thankfully, grief from them. Yeah, I can I can see once you get up to a certain level, you're going to have some some outlier situations that you have to diffuse. But you're probably dealing with players and coaches who've been doing this a long time. Players since they were little, they they kind of know the rhythm of the game, how they're supposed to conduct themselves. Same with the coaching staff and uh, even the the parents, the spectators. So you probably don't have a lot of explosive problems to deal with 
<laughs> you're, you're right. Thankfully, and thankfully that is the case. The, the kids are very respectful. They're very good about yes, sir. And no, sir. And uh, they've been playing the game long enough to know that the coaches handle any potential issues or real issues that happen on the field. And even in the pregame meeting, we set the tone real early when we tell coaches, Hey, look, if the, if you have any questions, you can approach us. Uh, we'll be glad to answer the best we can. We just want to get it right. And when you do that, uh, it goes a long way uh, to building trust as well as well as an umpire hustling, being in good position to make uh, your judgment calls. Uh, that further builds up your credibility. So, you know, in, uh, in the big league game, we're starting to see even fans even I've got a friend who would who would prefer to see robot umpires across the board and just do away with the human umpire. I am completely and adamantly against it. I notice on page twenty two of this manual, to err is human. Umpires are human, miss pitches or errors and judgment will happen. Umpires should do their best to have as few as possible. When you boot a call or miss a pitch, do not resolve to even the call next time. Once called, that's it. It's over and done. Such a resolve blows your objectivity. There's no way you can write the call. A missed pitch or a booted call is just that. It's missed and gone forever. How do you react when you call somebody safe or you call somebody out, and then seconds later in your mind you know, hmm, maybe... Maybe I missed that. Not not sure, but maybe I did. And you just how do you, do you keep your composure? I mean, you have to. But what have you had that happen very often? Well, uh, we are human. I know that I've if if I've ever erred on anything on the ball field, it's uh, on the ball strike pitches. And if I've thought that a call was questionable then what it tells me is is that, well, maybe I was a little too quick to judge and I just need to slow things down. But by and large, the safe and outs are usually more clear than the balls and strikes. At least I have found in my own experiences of looking back on my judgment calls. But yeah, you know, that's why we umpires have to go into the cages in the preseason and start looking at pitches early uh, before the February 15th opening day, just so that we can get used to squatting, getting our head in the right position, getting our feet in the right position behind the catcher, and make sure that we see the pitch all the way in to the catcher's glove uh, before we make a call, because you're supposed to pause, read, and react. And if you do it the right way, you see the pitch, watch it go into the glove, and then you pause for maybe a second or so, confirm in your mind that was a strike or that was a ball, and then you announce your call. And in the case of a strike, you do your hand motion, hand and arm motion. But that's why you have repetitions. That's why you. Uh, that's why folks like me have to practice between now and. February to get into get your mind into game shape as well as your body. Dan, do umpires have, or just speaking for yourself, when you get to the ball field and you smell the grass and it's a beautiful spring day, do you have time? I imagine you do 
to take it in and have just that moment, that fleeting moment where you look around and you think, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. This is great. Okay, now down to business. Now let me get my checklist going. Do you still have those moments? Oh, of course I do. I mean, when you love the game of baseball and you love you love what you do, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's truly a gift that umpires like us never want to take for granted. And you have that awe and wonder moment when you get to the ball field and you just uh, want to take in the sights and sounds and certainly uh, the beautiful weather. And But then you realize, okay, we have a job to do. Let's get our mind right. Let's do it. go through our pregame motions and get ready for first pitch. But, yes, uh, it's truly a gift. Just to tell you a story, Dan, this happened really early in my umpiring career. Uh, my association gets together during the season on every other Sunday just to have get game assignments. And, I, you know, I was – they're raising my hand trying to get games just like my colleagues were. And then the supervisor announced this. I want to say this was around two, this had to been 2001 or so, my second year in. It says, all right, Mountain Brook versus Woodlawn. This game's at Rickwood Field on this day and time. Who's available? And I quickly raised my hand and and I got the assignment along with whoever my partner was. And I Googled Rickwood Field, and I knew a little bit about the history, but then after Googling it, I thought, wow. And normally I get to a game assignment to the field 30 minutes ahead of time to uh, have my take-it-in moment. For Rickwood Field, I got there an hour and 15 minutes ahead of time because I had read so much about the history of it that I wanted to walk around and just take it all in before getting to, uh, my game day focus on. So, yeah, it, it happens to us. So you, you can't help it. You're human. Uh, and if you love the game of baseball like you or I do, you would have done the same thing. <laughs> oh, man. What an experience. And and at the time, you just didn't. That was an introduction to the specter of Rickwood Field. Correct. That was my very first introduction to Rickwood, too. But, yeah, you, when you're a fan of the game, you want to take in the moment and, and just know that, wow, I get to do this. This is a privilege. And I, I still have those feelings going into season 24 as I did for seasons one and two. And speaking of Rickwood Field, I'm not, as we're recording this call, I'm not yet sure of the order, but I believe this episode will fall just after my conversation with your friend Gerald Watkins, the chairman mm -hmm. and executive director of Friends of Rickwood. How much fun have you had being involved with that organization and what you get to do during the Rickwood Classic? Uh, it's awesome. Rickwood is, an, is a special place, and... I owe a former Jefferson County co-worker of mine, Charlie Wagner, a, a debt of gratitude because he's the one who recruited me to volunteer and help Friends of Rickwood out. And uh, I'll always remember this. I started at Jefferson County in 2003 uh, in my elected position. And Charlie and I struck up a friendship and it got to be like May or June. I think it was June. And he said, Dan, I need your help on something that's baseball related. And, and of course, that caught my attention. I said, well, what is it? And he told me 
well, my son and I are supposed to run the scoreboard for the Rickwood Classic because I'm involved with Friends of Rickwood on their board of directors, and we could use some help. And I said, I'm here. Sign me up. And uh, that's how I got involved with Rickwood. I did the my first scoreboard in 2003 for that classic, and then the subsequent year, and I uh, did the same thing. And the end of 2004, start of 2005, I want to say that's about right. I was voted onto the board of directors because I'd shown, you know, the time, interest, and enthusiasm, and and that's where my relationship with FOR uh, got launched. And here I am 20 years later, and I'm still involved with the organization because it's a great cause and a great historical place. And I obviously haven't been able to lay eyes on the refurbished Rickwood Field. Many people have not, I'm sure. I just cannot wait to see what this place is going to look like. I'll probably have to watch it on TV for the first ever Major League Baseball game in the state of Alabama, the Tribute to the Negro Leagues game, which, as I understand, is I didn't ask Gerald this directly, but I think an opportunity may have opened up with the Field of Dreams location in Iowa being kind of on hold as they were going on, undergoing some new development on that site and created an opportunity, perhaps. I mean, what an event that we've got coming in June and it, it you're right it, it's exciting and, and with the teams uh the cardinals and the giants to agree to give up you know one of those teams had to give up a home date to uh agree to come to birmingham so yeah it, you're right it is exciting we've had major league baseball teams come through rickwood but they were always preseason exhibitions but this is the first you know you're right regular season game first and head to head two mlb teams taking each other on and it it's not an exhibition game, is that right? This is this will count. This counts to the to the standings, absolutely. And the Negro League tie-in for our teams is that, in the case of the St. Louis Cardinals, if I recall correctly, their very first Negro League or former Negro League player who played on the Cardinals was a relief pitcher by the name of Bill Greason, who made his name and reputation as a starting pitcher in the Negro Leagues. And Bill Greeson is, I want to say, like a 98, 99-year-old retired minister in Birmingham. And uh, so this is a chance uh, for him to have a nice opportunity in the limelight. And then you throw in on the Giants' side, their greatest baseball player ever in their history was one Willie Mays from uh, nearby Westfield, which is now no longer a community, but it's near his next door neighbors, Fairfield and Rickwood field was where 16 year old Willie Mays made his professional debut with the Birmingham black Barons. And this was back, I want to say in 1948, which was the year the Birmingham black Barons won the pennant that year. And, uh, and so now here we are, what, uh, more than 75 years later, something like that. Uh, we have a chance to feature Willie Mays and have an opportunity for him to return to his uh, hometown for a uh, Major League Baseball game involving his former team. So, yeah, this is a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity in more ways than one. It's just such a storybook 
I don't even know the right way to describe it, but it's for the city of Birmingham and friends of Rickwood, fans like me who grew up in Birmingham. And, you know, we know about Rickwood Field. We know about the prestige. Everybody knows it's the oldest ballpark in America, perhaps the world, Mm -hmm. uh, still actively hosting games, Miles College, high school baseball. It's so exciting for it to be put on the global stage for the intrigue and the excitement for new fans to lay eyes on Birmingham, Alabama, and the, and just get this awareness of Rickwood Field, all the kids who, you know, like when I was 10, 12, 14 years old, living and breathing baseball, for them to be able to sink their teeth into Rickwood Field, maybe wanting to grab a book about it. I, I just, I love everything about what's going on. I know then talking to Gerald, some concessions had to be made, obviously getting this the field big league ready, particularly the dugouts, uh, having to take away those old dugouts. But mm-hmm. it just had to be done, and I think it's just going to look spectacular. Agreed, agreed. I mean, look, I mean, everybody uh, who is familiar with Rickwood's story knows that, you know, it's an old ballpark. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, and I'm sure Gerald touched on it, is that if we wanted to have professional baseball back at Rickwood Field year in and year out, then, you know, these upgrades needed to be done. And this is not the first renovation of Rickwood Field. This is just the first renovation in a really long time. So, but, you know, what we're excited about are the opportunities that will come to the ballpark in subsequent years. I mean, amateur baseball will continue to come to Rickwood Field, but the idea that we could have uh, the Barons back for future Rickwood Classics, uh, that in and of itself makes the renovation project all the more worthwhile. And the idea of having future major league games possibly come back to Birmingham is uh, further icing on the cake. So, yeah, I mean, these renovations had to be done. I mean, you're talking about a a ballpark that opened in 1910, and here we are in 2024. Yeah, uh, any building needs to be updated uh, in order to remain relevant. I can remember some of the old Rickwood Classic games. I think my first one was 2002, and mm-hmm. I may have missed a couple, but I know I got a streak going somewhere around 05, 6, 7, where I didn't miss one until I moved to Pensacola. But, uh, you know, it usually fell on... Wednesday at the end of May, pretty hot, Correct. pretty warm in Birmingham. And I, I just I remember the ball players for the Barons and the visiting teams sitting on top of those old dugouts because you can imagine how stuffy <laughs> was inside but and, and cramped. Too. I, actually, after the Correct. game, you know, as a fan, you can go out on the field. I don't know if they'll re- resume that and play ball, sit in the dugouts, run the bases. Uh, so... Exciting stuff. And, you know, like we were talking, uh, and I spoke with Gerald about this tribute to the Negro Leagues game, all these upgrades, I'm sure there's a plan for 2025 hosting a game, 2026, and hopefully uh, each year going forward. Dan, how excited would you be if the Cincinnati Reds are playing against, you know, the New York Mets or something next year? Uh, that would that's a, 
Uh, I you, wow, you got me speechless there. No, <laughs> it, 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 it would be really cool. And, and in case uh, for my team, the Reds, the Reds actually had a relationship with the Birmingham Barons in the late 1930s through the mid 40s. And so there would be a nice historical tie-in if it were to happen. But, I, I, you know, it would be nice if it happened. I'm not counting on it. Any major league game coming back to uh, Rickwood that way will be a pleasant surprise if it does. But what I'm excited about is, you know, the opportunity for, uh, you know, right now the Barons to come back and resume the annual Rickwood Classic. That would be really cool. And on top of that, Rickwood will continue to host all kinds of travel ball and college ball and uh, high school games in a new improved uh, ball field. And uh, that, too, is worth it. So Now, Dan, let's, uh, let's uh, jump off for a minute. And I know you're a family man. You spend a lot of time with your son. Is he a baseball fan like you are? Are you guys on the same level, or is there a gap there where dad's there's a, there, crazy there's, there's about play, it? There, there, there's, a, there's a gap. He, he is, <laughs> that's a pretty hard thing to measure up to your old man uh, <laughs> as far as uh, I want Jack to develop his own interests, and I would love it if he, can, if he shows as much interest in baseball as I do. You know, so he'll follow the game casually. Uh, I'm raising him to be a fourth-generation Reds fan. But, you know, he also loves football. And, hey, good. I'm glad he's passionate about uh, something. Uh, but, you know, he also enjoys uh, other things, too. He's currently involved with Boy Scouts. He's involved with the high school band here in Homewood. He's uh, He does ultimate Frisbee. And so he has his own passions. And I want him to follow his heart and uh, do what truly stirs him. And if baseball finds a way there in his adulthood, then then that's awesome. But if it doesn't, well, uh, you know, that's fine too. But, you know, he'll certainly enjoy going to baseball games with me. He always has. And, you know, he's, he's a typical teenager. He's 16 years old. And, there, I'm sure there are a lot of things that he associates with dad that are just right now uncool. So <laughs> maybe he'll come back around as an adult. <laughs> oh, I, I know he will. Yeah. And it, I do talk on this uh, podcast about dads and their sons or daughters or moms and sons and daughters and whatever you got the fire in the belly for. It might not be the same thing for your child, but. Like you said, it's important to just be involved and uh, be in touch with what really interests them. You know, you might be a huge football fan, but your child is into theater or uh, something like that. And, hey, uh, find out everything you need to learn about theater or uh, whatever sparks their interest. And just be around, hang out. Uh, Like you said, when (laughs) my kids aren't. They're not teenagers yet. I'm sure I'll blink an eye, and one of them will be, but there'll mm-hmm. be a time where they don't want to hang out with you as much. But uh, I'm sure a great thing about the game of baseball, you can go to the ballpark with a friend, with a coworker, or with your son or daughter or your spouse, and they may not care about runners on first and third, whether they should bunt or steal. They just like that, hey, we're sitting together, no one's in a rush. Nobody's got to be somewhere. We're just going to sit and enjoy and talk. And, hey, what, I'm going to get a hot dog. What do you want? And 
just so many wonderful things about that experience. You can go to the ballpark and, and have a great time, even if you're not a huge fan. I agreed. I couldn't have said that better myself. Well, in the off season here, you know, I guess it's for some teams, it's been pretty eventful for others, pretty routine, but I, I know the Cincinnati Reds have strengthened their bullpen. Just saw Buck Farmer. Some of these guys, some of these middle relievers fly under the radar. They don't, you know, grab the headlines, but you know, he was pretty steady presence there in the Reds bullpen. Buck Farmer, they re-signed. Um, yes. Emilio Pagan signed a two-year deal. That's that's big stuff. You know, pitching usually, it may not get you all the way to the title, but if you've got a staff ace and a strong bullpen, you know, that's what you need. Everything I've been reading, which has not been, I haven't done a lot of well, dense, sure. dense reading in the offseason with the family responsibilities, but what I do hear is that the Reds are at least expected to be an 80-plus win team, grab a wild-card spot, compete for the division. Are you excited about 2024 for your Cincinnati oh, Reds? Uh, of, of, of course. I mean, last year's team exceeded my expectations. I didn't. We stunk up the joint so bad all 2022 that, you know, I personally set my expectations for the team as, you know, losing record, but, you know, only winning 72, 71, 72 games. And instead they won 82. And now they've gone out, as you pointed out, with Amelia Pagan. And they just the other day signed Frankie Montas to a, uh, a one-year deal to be a starter. And so, yeah, they're investing in pitching because uh, we have <laughs> we still had some pitching struggles. I think our starting rotation – gave us like among the fewest innings in major league baseball. And so we rode our bullpen hard and wore them out. And so, yeah, they've, I like the investments they've made in, uh, in some free agent signings. Uh, and it, it makes me optimistic that 2024 can be a better year for our team. But you also know that, you know, the Cardinals are going to be competitive. The Cubs have a great young core of players. You know that they're going to be competitive too. So, yeah, uh, it's a fun time to be a baseball fan uh, in the National League Central, uh, whether you're a Reds fan or a Cubs fan or a Cardinals fan. You know, the Brewers are still trying to figure themselves out. They're in transition. And, of course, the Pirates are seemingly on a, uh, yet another rebuild. But, yeah, it's uh, as a Reds fan, it's exciting to see what my team has done. And you just hope that it pays off uh, with a uh, with a playoff run in October. Yeah, that NL Central is usually, well, not always up for grabs, but it's very competitive division. A few small market teams there, the Reds, the Pirates. Brewers. The Brewers. Um, So if you are a small market team like the Reds, I think it makes sense to invest in pitching because you may not be able to go out and grab that big bat. You're not going to play for Shohei Otani. Uh, So why not try to get the arms that, not only can shut down those big bats, but they're probably assessing guys who they think have a good chance of staying healthy uh, in 2024. It's always hard to gauge. One thing is for sure for a small market team, whether it's, you know, the Brewers or the Reds is that you can't uh, afford to give out the big contracts like the Dodgers have just done, or the Yankees typically do, or the angels or even the Cubs. And so, you have to spend your money and hit it right. 
because you can uh, maybe afford to eat one bad contract, uh, but it really cripples you if you have to pay out more than one to a player who has been a bust for you for uh, various and sundry reasons. So, yeah, it's um, it's always a challenge for our teams. On the other hand, you know, that's, that's life that, you know, you don't have all the resources you want, but you have some resources and you try to make the, the most and the best of it. So the way the Dodgers have been free spending it, I joked with other baseball friends of mine that the Dodgers have given me about another billion more reasons never to pull for them. <laughs> <laughs> but look, if baseball is a great game and, you know, whether it's a fan or as I am as a baseball umpire, it's, uh, it's our passion and it's definitely my passion. And uh, just like it is for you, you follow the Cubs and that's what makes the game as great as it is. It gives us uh, an opportunity to bond over yet another world of subjects. Well, one final point on working as an umpire. We could probably dedicate another episode to this topic, but you really have to trust the umpires around you. Uh, Actually, here I'm on page 61. Now, this is just under remember the following, and there's like seven or eight or more. Trust your partner and work as a team. Maintain your composure at all times. It takes two people to have an argument. And then underlined, don't let your ego ruin the game. A lot of things that you have to adhere to. Umpires, hopefully after listening to this episode, if you're a baseball fan, the next game you watch and you see an umpire standing in a particular spot on the field in between innings, it really not, might not be arbitrary. Or the way that, you're, that you are standing or your arms are falling, that sort of thing. But, uh, yeah, going back to just trust your partner and work as a team, do you have, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to have a great relationship with the, uh, the folks around you. Uh, it, well, it's paramount. I mean, something that Owen Butts, my umpiring supervisor, tells us every preseason and during the season is, remember, you and your partner are a team. And you have no fans you have plenty of critics out there, but the two of you have to get the job done. Uh, you're there to uh, officiate the game. You're not there to determine winners and losers. You're there just to enforce the rules. And so you have to have each other's backs. And so, yes, there is a high level of trust you have to have uh, between one another uh, in order to get through each game assignment successfully. And I'm happy to say that, you know, my chapter, we are full of very good umpires who know the game, know what their roles are, and it it makes it easier. And the part about egos is absolutely right. You you know, you can't let your ego get in the way of uh, what you're there to do. And that's a good lesson that can be applied to uh, everyday work life and in other relationships as well. So. But yeah, those things are pretty critical in order to be a great umpire who people want to work with during the season and in the postseason. Well, Dan, I uh, I just want to take a minute here and thank you for your nearly quarter century of high school baseball umpiring and being a part of the game on that level. And I've only skimmed through this document that you guys have to have mastered and hopefully we keep all the field umpires at the big league level 
for a long, long time. I mean, I think every fan loves the animation of the umpire with his particular, you know, I guess I didn't ask when you call somebody out, play at the plate, you throw the fist up. Do you have certain motions that are that you've you've come up with then, hey, this is my this is the way I'm gonna make the call. You know, like starting the lawnmower. Uh what's I don't know how you guys what the lingo is, but well, okay. I, I think I get where you're you're going at. Uh, if you're talking about being behind the plate and you got a particular strike three call, there's there is pulling the string. I've heard the lawnmower expression. Uh, and if the pitch is right on the corner, it hits the edge of the strike zone for strike three, particularly if it ends uh, the bottom or top half of the inning. Yeah, I, I may sell it with an extra umph. But if it's a routine pitch down the middle and everyone can see it's a strike, I don't have to sell it. And so I give it a more calm uh, strike three motion. On the bases, if we get a banger, a typical one is, you know, a close play at first play at, at first base. Uh, you know, shortstop goes in the hole and has to throw it a long way and the first baseman stretches and it's a real banger. Yeah, I may... Uh, sell the call with a uh, with an extra loud. Uh, he's out. Or if there's a banger on the bases involving uh, you know runner trying to take an extra base, and he gets in there just ahead of the tag, I may sell the safe call just a little bit more than I would uh, normally. But on the other hand, if it's an out and most everyone can see that uh, that that player is out or if it's safe and it really wasn't that close, then I can just give a uh, routine call and a with less volume in my voice and people will understand, oh, he got it. He was on top of it. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> and real quick, this is probably something I could Google, but for people listening, driving and just curious, do you know the significance behind the umpire calling a strike and turning his, his full body, I guess, to the right and then throwing out that index finger towards towards what I guess would be the home dugout? If I remember my baseball history correctly, there was a baseball player, his last name was Hoy, and he was deaf. And because he was deaf, if I remember the baseball history correctly, that's what started the beginning of uh, hand signals for strike and, and out and uh, things like that. Uh, but before then, it used to be the umpires just gave a verbal. But we're talking, geez, turn of the prior century that this development happened. And then, of course, you know, if it's a ball, I guess most, most umpires just say ball, but there's no motion, and the only people that would hear it would be the uh, players and coaches on the field within earshot. Well, yeah, we, we umpires are supposed to keep our heads still and just give the verbal ball because if we start moving and doing hand signals, uh, everybody expects the call to be a strike. And so uh, if you, uh, you move your body and yell ball, then it looks like you were indecisive, and that's what invites uh, people to question your credibility. And so that's why at least we umpires are trained to keep extra still and just say ball before resetting yourself versus the strike. You throw in your hand motion as well. Dan, I, 
I'm a little uncomfortable asking, but I, but but I got to ask. I'm sure it's happened in 24 years. The foul tip coming off of a, a cutter or just a high fastball, back gets just under it, and it misses the catcher's mitt and hits you right in the mask. Has that happened? <laughs> yes, it has. Uh, what is that you, like? It's not pleasant. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the, the only – it's never good to get hit in the mass, but it sure beats getting hit in the cup. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> but you're supposed to position your head as the home plate umpire in the upper inside quadrant of the strike zone. And most of your body should be protected by the catcher. And there are times where the catcher misses the pitch, or what's more likely, as you reference, is the batter swings and fouls it and just redirects the direction of the ball that it hits your mask. And it's very jarring. And, and so what I try to do, I quickly call it foul and then I whip off the mask because the mask is reverberating and uh, you just want to whip off the mask and walk away. Of course, the it being a foul ball, the all play has stopped anyway, but yeah, it's uh it's not a good feeling, but it, it does happen. Maybe it happens to me now about once a year to every other season. And, you know, that's, a, that's not too bad. But hopefully uh, those events are few and far between. You know, you also will take errant pitches or foul balls off of your chest protector or off your shin guards, and thankfully – those are some pretty hard equipment there that you barely feel anything. And, uh, you know, some of these particularly long games, have you had some extra inning games in the just the summer, the thick of the summer, and, you know, it's 14 innings. Now we're going into the top of the 15th. Uh, you're just sweating everywhere. Uh, how are those experiences where, you know, everybody loves the game, but wow. Uh, have you had some particularly trying afternoons where it's just a hundred and something degrees and man, can somebody get a, a run across? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Uh, it has been a long time since I've been in a long game situation, summer or not summer. And, but uh, thankfully amateur ball, the rules have, changed particularly with travel ball but now it's made its way to the high school association that there are now time limits on games and so the likelihood of having an extra inning game go into the 10th 11th or as you referenced the 14th inning is getting more and more unlikely but the long games that are just absolutely dreadful is when you have one team in a talent mismatch against a weaker team and it's already like a 15-run difference, in the, and it's only the second inning. And you're just begging, like, come on, please, guys, swing the ball, make some outs, please, let's just move this game along. But, yeah, those happen, and uh, you just learn to weather through it. And But you have to, as an umpire, try to maintain your concentration and uh, call every pitch consistently and uh, show as much effort 
with each pitch of a lopsided game as you do for a close competitive game. And one other thing I was going to ask, just trying to think of some of these hot-button questions that, that might be on people's minds, the average fan may think that with an ejection, you know, you just you guys get animated, you're face-to-face, that's enough, and you throw the finger up to the sky, and you and he's out of there, and he's walking off. People probably don't realize that you've still got to fill out some paperwork after the game and get this emailed or written in, a, a written report down. Is that true? Uh, you got to turn it around quickly. Uh, I'll let the college or professional guys, you know, share how they handle ejections. Uh, but in the high school level, it used to be that you had to get your report in uh, by email within 24 hours. Now with advances in technology, it's more like they wanted uh, the high school association down Montgomery wants it within 12. And so you have to make notes of who got ejected and for what reason. And it's typically unsportsmanlike conduct, questioning judgment calls, which they're not supposed to do, or in the case of players and a violent collision, maybe malicious contact, you know, some form of unsportsmanlike conduct like that. But the point is, is that we have to report it to our supervisor, typically in an email or text immediately after the game. And they pass, my supervisor then passes it up the food chain to the state to deal with. And there are consequences for getting ejected in baseball, at least at the high school level. If I remember correctly, the first ejection, uh, you get a warning. The second ejection, you get a small suspension, like a one or two game suspension and a fine. And if a coach is ejected uh, or a player is ejected the third time, they are done for the season. And, you know, no coach wants to be ejected and be subject to punishment. And so, and we umpires really don't want to do paperwork. (laughs) So, you know, we try to warn coaches, you know, give them a warning, give them a verbal. And then if we have to warn them again, make it a written warning and restrict them to the bench. And that way they can calm down and cool off and, uh, but they still remain in the game. The, The high school association is trying to encourage umpires to keep players and coaches in the game as long as possible and only eject if they've crossed the proverbial line that, you know, would get anyone ejected. So thankfully it's only been, it's been uh, at least three years, probably longer since I've ever had to dump a coach. And hopefully I can keep that trend going if everybody just behaves themselves. <laughs> <laughs> So when it does happen at this level, it's particularly rare, and the violator has probably really crossed the line and, and been, unless it was one play, it must be somebody that you just can't get through to between innings. Like, hey, let's 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 keep it keep uh, it down. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you a couple of quick stories of where I had to eject people, and they absolutely deserved it. I had a kid. I was behind home plate. Uh, this kid was batting and a pitch came in fastball low outside corner knee knee high they caught the plate and I said strike two you know strike for strike two and he gave me a what 
And next pitch came in, same pitch, same location. I rung him up for strike three. And as he was walking back to the dugout, he turned to me and yelled, bull and cussing on uh, is an grounds for automatic ejection. And so I just whipped off my mask and said, kid, you're done. And I walked up to his coach and pointed out his number. I said, you're going to need a new third baseman. You know, what did he do? Well, the coach asked me, well, what did my kids say, essentially? And I have to watch my own language or I could be subject to punishment myself. And so I just said, he said the BS word. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, and so it's like, okay, probably the most serious coaching ejection I ever did was uh, over 10 years ago, I had a banger on the bases that went against the home team. And the coach came out to disagree with my call. And he got so close to me, he actually belly bumped me. And it's like, all right, you're done. And before his other coaches could come and restrain him, he started finger pointing at me. And he actually poked with his index finger my upper lip and scratched me. And Wow. And uh, and so I sent the ejection report and I did something that I have never done before or since was I actually included a selfie of me to show the scratch. And I also made it a point not to shave. So I had a day's growth and you could still see the scratch. And so no one can say, oh, Dan cut himself and is making up a story about, you know, the coach poking him. No, it, it was still there. And uh, the coach ended up getting suspended and fined by the state association. And he clearly deserved it. But, you know, those were probably the two most serious incidents I ever had to deal with it involving an ejection. But, hey, it does happen. And if people don't behave themselves and they cross the line, well, they deserve to get punished. And that applies in real life as well. <laughs> so. I guess most of the time you can have you can have a coach disagree with you and maybe share his opinion. And then after the game, do they not necessarily say, Hey, I apologize. I was a little, little hot about that, but they just try to uh, shift gears and, and be nice and say, Hey, have a, uh, hope you have a great uh, rest of the weekend or does it uh, that happens. drift it, it, into it, it, niceties where it's just, Oh, let's just forget that ever happened. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it happens more often than you realize. And yeah, you understand it's the passion. You know, they're they're competing. They're trying to win every game. And at the end of the game, they recognize, you know, we're just doing our job. And, you know, we quickly let bygones be bygones. And so that's why we have, we coaches and umpires tend to have an excellent relationship uh, because we know each other. We've seen each other over the years and we know each other's to be, we, we know what our roles are. And what you also find is that a number of coaches have also umpired games, and so they know what it's like to be behind the mask and having to do this job. Well, Dan, I uh, – wow. If, it, if it's baseball-related, we could do a two-, three-hour episode, and uh, that would be just fine with me. But do you have time for a, uh, a few quick – a little fun Dan time questions. Go for it. 
Okay. Lightning round. I think. Go for it. You know, and everybody listening, if I don't know if people even like these questions. The the, the real silly ones. I've, I've gone a few weeks without uh, popping them out there. So here we go, folks. Dan, and this is something that has happened to me, I'm embarrassed to say, at least a couple times. Have you ever left a restaurant and you got the to-go box and you're walking out and you got to get something in the car first, so you put the box on top of the car and then you just forget that it's there and you start driving off and all you see in the side mirror or the rear view is that white styrofoam box of, uh, of, of tomorrow's lunch that you were hoping for just fly into the night. <laughs> I have... I, I have done that with a to-go cup. I have not done that with food. Uh, and it's a, uh, it's a humbling moment that all you can do is just laugh at yourself. <laughs> I've, uh, on countless occasions, gotten the box but left the food at the restaurant on the table. It's, I don't even know how many times that's happened. Well, Dan, those are, I can only, I'm laughing with you because those are mistakes that I could easily make myself. (laughs) Um, Dan, have you ever, don't ask me where these questions come from. I just, some of them I screen and some of them I, I move to the top of the stack. Have you ever had to stop on the road and run and use the restroom and you use the soap from the soap dispenser and it's just got this. You know, it's just not that pleasant, soft soap, homey kind of fragrance. It's just that gas station soap fragrance that stays on your hands for the next half of the day. Have, it, does that bother you? It's it's a little bit of a problem for me, but I I, I gotta ask. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm talking oh, about? We 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 we've all been in those kinds of situations. Heck, I'm just glad to run into a restroom that actually has soap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, and it's, and, but for that and for other reasons, I try to keep moist wipes, handy wipes also available in the car to give my hands a second cleaning just, uh, just to be safe, you know. <laughs> and are you above stopping on the road? Cause you just, you can't wait for the next exit or two and you pull up and it's that gas station that they still have the key to the bathroom around back and you go in and there's it's just not desirable and you don't have to do much but you gotta you gotta take care of business are you above using those less than ideal bathrooms uh i i I bail out of there if uh all i ask for is a is a semi-decent clean uh bathroom and if i can't get it i'm I, I'm taking my business literally elsewhere. <laughs> okay, let me let me clean up my act a little bit here. What about um, uh, Laffy Taffy jokes? Maybe you don't eat the candy anymore, but we all remember the the material on those wrappers. If if your son, if Jack were to read one off to you, would you do you think you'd laugh at most of these jokes? I would. Uh, I would guffaw. I still, uh, but, but but I also know that uh, a lot of the jokes are uh, what are I hear nowadays are called dad humor, and I'm definitely uh, 
one who uh, spreads bad humor. So that's why uh, <laughs> my son, my son uh, hates my humor. He hates the puns. And so, uh, so I, that's why I guffaw is because uh, he'll just facepalm at the same time. <laughs> one thing I like about you, Dan, is I feel like we are in the same boat as far as embracing not just fatherhood, being a dad, but but being the caricature of the goofy dad, the the corny dad at times, and and not having any problem with it. I I know who I am. I know that some of the music I listen to is not very current anymore. And right. uh, but as I mentioned, I think on an episode, I did a bonus episode with my brother Rob, and we were talking about planes, trains, and automobiles. And when John Candy delivers it's kind of an emotional scene but he says i i like me i i'm fine with this that's how i feel i think that's how you must feel as well uh well you and i are comfortable in our own skin <laughs> uh a quick a couple laffy taffy jokes just since we brought it up what's a parasite the answer is a place you go in paris <laughs> Boy. Now that's a tough one. Uh, uh, that that that's a good one. How do you communicate with a fish? You drop it a line. <laughs> mm. That that that's great. Uh, why this is all right? This is going to have to be the last the last joke. Why was the cat afraid of the tree? I have no idea. Why was the cat afraid of the tree? Because of its bark. Uh, but I will say, you know, cause my kids are six and, uh, two and a half, uh, they be rolling on the floor, laughing at these jokes. And when the time comes, we're going to dive into them. Cause wow. How about one more? Why don't lobsters share? Hmm. You're going to love this one, Dan. Why? Why? I don't know. Why do lobsters not share? <laughs> because they are shellfish. that's uh those are awesome those are great keep telling those jokes dan (laughs) all right one more for for the fans here we're on our second or third encore did you hear the joke this is this is timely did you hear the joke about the toilet never mind it's too dirty there we go (laughs) <laughs> those are great all right dan thanks for your time i enjoyed it look forward to catching up with you again all right if you love that episode if you're enjoying the dan time podcast be sure to download and subscribe so you never miss an episode you can reach me at dantimepod@gmail.com. at gmail.com hope you have a great week i'll see you next sunday